Well, it's a tremendous privilege for me to be with here with you this morning to spend a little bit of time reflecting on the mystery of justice and Aquinas' attempts to articulate a theology that was faithful to this mystery. So yes, Aquinas on justice as a state, as a virtue, and as a juridical reality. The very first reference to justice in the Summa Theologiae appears in the said contra of the very first article of question one on whether there is a science other than philosophy where he establishes the need and existence of a sacred science. It appears, this reference to justice, in a quotation from 2 Timothy 3.16, where 2 Timothy affirms, all scripture is divinely inspired and useful for teaching, for argument, and for correction, and for training in justice. Paideon tain en dikaiosune. So training, the discipline of justice. What exactly does justice mean here? This question confronts Aquinas throughout the scriptures. For example, how should we interpret the psalmist's affirmation that the Lord is just and loves justice? Or Paul's assertion that Christ is our justice? Or his further assertion that in Christ we become the justice of God? Is justice employed uh, in the same way in each of these examples? As we shall see, Thomas Aquinas draws on Aristotle's account of justice to interpret both the scriptural theology of justice and the Roman law's definition of justice. To understand the achievement and lasting value of Aquinas's synthetic vision of justice, it will be helpful to begin by looking at the understanding of justice developed by some of his predecessors. Augustine and the transformation of, of virtue. Augustine's theology of justice presupposes and accepts the classical understanding that justice primarily consists in giving to each one what is his, sum quique. This was a proverbial truism in classical culture and served as Rome's pithiest definition of justice. Shakespeare was thus not wrong when he had the tribune Marcus Andronicus, Titus's brother, affirm sum quique is our Roman justice. Augustine's proximate source uh, for this definition is Cicero who in the De Invencione, uh, his work on uh, ri rhetorical construction, rhetorical invention, in the De Invencione defines justice as follows. Justice is a habit of spirit, often translated as mind, but he could have used the word mens if he wanted to it. So it's animi is uh, habitus spirit. So justice is a habit, habit of spirit, which with proper regard for the common welfare, common utility, renders to each one his own due, 
suum dignitatem, renders to each one what his dignity deserves. In his early dialogue, De Ordine, Augustine applies this to divine justice. God's justice, quote, God's justice consists in separating the good from the wicked, giving to each one what is his. Augustine then adds that, quote, there is, it seems to me, no clear definition of justice, unquote. Augustine seems to retain this high regard, his high regard for this uh, traditional definition, uh, when in book 19 of the De Civitate Dei, he describes justice as having, quote, the office, munus, the office of rendering to each one what is his. Indeed, Augustine further follows Cicero in affirming that the foundation of justice is the natural order of things. Quote, hence there is in man himself a certain just order of nature, so that the soul is subjected to God and the flesh to the soul, and consequently both soul and flesh to God. It is here, however, that we discover that Augustine has a somewhat subversive goal in appealing to this definition of justice, because the whole point of these chapters of Book 19 is to reveal the insufficiency of natural justice and of the pagan Romans' cultivation of it. Augustine underlines that Roman virtue did not bring either the happiness it sought nor the true peace that it sought. From the outset of his theological reflections on the Christian life, Augustine pondered the nature of virtue and struggled to understand the relationship between pagan insights into virtue and Christian insights into the love of God and the life of grace. Augustine subsequently develops a robust theology of grace and of the virtues as flowing from the ordered love that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, Romans 5, 5. So in the De Moribus Ecclesia Catholice, Augustine presents justice as, quote, love serving alone that which is love and thus ruling rightly, which he subsequently defines in relation to God, affirming that, quote, justice is love serving God only and therefore ruling well what is subject to man. Augustine sees this reordering of justice in relationship to love as sanctioned by Paul, when Paul affirms that we are, quote, to owe no one anything except to love one another, Romans 13, 8. And thus Augustine appends this Pauline precept to the traditional definition of justice. Quote, justice, he now affirms, is that by which we give to each one what is his, owing no one anything but loving all. Augustine will thus portray Christian justice in this life as primarily concerned with, quote, this is from the De Trinitate, helping the wretched, miserere. As Robert Dodaro explains, quote, the classical philosophical notion of justice, which is conceived in terms of natural distributive justice, giving to each person his or her due, is thus translated into Christian terms as giving to God and to one's neighbor, the love which is their due by virtue of the double commandment of love. Add to this Augustine's mature concern for justification, 
developed during his controversies with the Pelagians. And we thus discover that Augustine left a mixed legacy to the Latin West. To the attentive reader, Augustine transmits the heart of Roman justice. It is the virtue by which we render to each one what is his. At the same time, however, by associating justice so closely to, to charity, he blurs the lines between the demands of justice and the demands of mercy. Indeed, when we read all that Augustine says about justice, we begin to see that he also blurs the distinction between justice as one of the four primary virtues and justice conceived as all virtue. This double blurring will have lasting implications for later Christian reflection on justice in the Latin West. So justice and early Latin scholasticism. When we turn to the early scholastics, the first thing to recognize is that although they began to draw on the newly rediscovered digest of Roman law, they will, have, they will not have access to Aristotle's reflections on justice from book five of the Nicomachean Ethics until Robert Grosseteste's translation, uh, which he finishes in 1247, but it probably doesn't start entering circulation until around 1250. Those, therefore, during the whole uh, 12th century Renaissance, those who wished to study the classical understanding of justice had to, do, had to turn to Cicero. The first to do this was Abelard, the much maligned and, of course, much troubled uh, Abelard. Although Augustine asserted that the four cardinal virtues were gifts of God's grace and portrayed them all as forms of charity, Abelard explicitly distinguishes the cardinal virtues from charity. For example, in his dialogue between a philosopher, a Jew, and a Christian, Abelard has uh, the Christian uh, member of the dialogue affirm the following. In fact, if virtue is understood properly, that is, as what obtains merit with God, then only charity is to be called a virtue. But if it is, let's see, where are we? Uh, if it is understood as what makes one just or courageous or temperate, then it is correct to call it justice, courage, or temperance. Abelard then puts in the mouth of the philosopher his own version of Cicero's definition of justice. Quote, justice, therefore, is the virtue that bestows on each one his due while preserving the common benefit. Abelard then addresses the tension between the individual and the community that this definition introduces. In other words, justice is that virtue whereby we want everyone to have what he deserves as long as this does not imply any common injury. Abelard subsequently portrays justice's act as, quote, saving for each one what is his and subdivides justice into four parts reverence, beneficence, truthfulness, and retribution. For Abelard, each part of justice corresponds to the different ways we owe things to others because of who they are and what they have done. We owe reverence, which Abelard sees as including obedience, to God and to superiors. We owe beneficence, 
to those in need, to the poor by means of liberality, uh, to the oppressed by means of clemency. On the other hand, we owe truthfulness to those to whom we have made promises, while we owe retribution, vindicatio, to those whose evil deeds merit punishment. Here again, however, Abelard underlines that we are to pursue these various parts of justice in ways that benefit the community, or as he states, in ways that, quote, preserve the common benefit. Abelard also helpfully distinguishes between natural justice and positive justice, and does so by distinguishing between natural and positive use. Natural use, Abelard explains, quote, concerns those things that reason naturally, always and in all peoples, recognizes as actions to be fulfilled, such as worshiping God, loving one's parents, and punishing the wicked. Positive justice, on the other hand, quote, is instituted by human beings to protect uh, either usefulness or honor, honestas, uh, more surely, or to increase them. It depends either on custom alone or on a written authority. Abelard offers the example of positive justice as expressed in determinations regulating the severity of punishment or the functioning of courts and the hearing of evidence. He further adds that the divine law revealed in the scriptures contains both natural precepts and expressions of positive justice. All of this is very help helpful and leaves one wondering what Abelard could have achieved had he had access to Aristotle's teachings on justice. Tragically, however, and for a lot of complicated historical reasons, Abelard's reflections had very little influence beyond his immediate disciples. As the great Odin Lotin long ago noted concerning the teachings of Abelard and his students, quote, these insights, as modest as they were, were themselves neglected by the other theologians of the end of the 12th century, who remained ignorant of the philosophy of antiquity and who had little interest in defining purely natural virtues. Although this criticism by Lotin is too harsh, it does point to the poverty of 12th century reflections on justice. This becomes especially clear when we turn to Peter Lombard, in, book, in the third book of the Sentences, after giving the traditional list of the four cardinal virtues, the Lombard chooses his definition of justice uh, from Augustine's assertion in the De Trinitate that, quote, justice consists in helping the wretched. Adding, um, along with Augustine, that in heaven, where there are, where no one is wretched, justice will then consist in submitting oneself to uh, the divine nature. Peter Lombard limits himself to these brief reflections. Others such as Stephen Langdon from their reading of the scriptures offer a hierarchical classification of justice, of the types of justice. As Lotin notes, Langdon discerns three uses of justice. First, the general meaning that signifies all virtue and applies both to Christ as the son of justice, and to the totality of virtue by which one uh, is described as being just in the scriptures. Second, taken in a more specific sense, 
it signifies the cardinal virtue, whose act is, quote, to render to each one what is his, unumquique sum redere. Lastly, it can be taken in a very strict sense to signify the act of judgment, the act of rendering justice that is proper to a judge. If we continue to read, uh, met, there are many others who have, who create these biblical lists in the same vein. William of Auxerre and Hugh of St. Cher offer similar lists. And with Philip the Chancellor and Alexander of Hales, these lists become much more elaborate, uh, where they consider different levels of graced rectitude, ranging from the general to the specific and differentiated according to their various objects. For those who have the courage to dive into these texts, one quickly begins to perceive that essential distinctions have become lost amid a sea of accidental minutiae. Albert the Great, for his part, in his writings before 1250, he wrote the Summa de Bono before 1250, but it, it's, it's incomplete, he stopped. And the Summa de Bono is largely about uh, the cardinal virtues. But when he's writing about justice during this period, he focuses mainly on the different types of general justice. And this makes sense because once again, he's looking at how scripture uses justice. Although he recognizes the importance of specific, of special justice, that is the cardinal virtue of justice, whose task he also recognizes as being to render to each one his due, Albert in these early writings appears much more concerned to understand the biblical meaning of justice as something that changes us in all our relationships, as well as our interiority within ourselves, so that this general justice approaches that of the state of original justice. Uh, there's a long quotation I, I didn't put in because it would take us too far afield, but it is fascinating to see how his primary attempt to understand is what's going on in, this, in the biblical notion of, of Abraham as the just one. What is that justice? Uh, so the issue that haunts, if we uh, look more generally at this period, the issue that haunts all these reflections is the relationship between the human experience of justice and the justice proclaimed in the scriptures as being the result of God's graced action in us. It is here that Thomas Aquinas, with the aid of the complete text of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, makes a lasting contribution to the Latin West's understanding of justice. Aquinas's use of Aristotle is on display already in his first treatment of justice in the Summa Theologiae, in the Prima Pars, question 21, in Article 1, on the justice of God. To answer the question whether there, uh, whether there is justice in God, Aquinas immediately turns to Aristotle's distinction between two types of particular justice, which Aristotle introduces in the early chapters of Book 5 of the Ethics. There is the justice proper to commercial exchanges, to the give and take of buying and selling, which Aquinas calls commutative justice. And there is the justice proper to the ordered distribution of goods, whether by a ruler or by a community's steward, where goods are distributed according to the dignity of each member of the community, which Aquinas follows Aristotle in calling distributive justice. Aquinas 
Aquinas' answer to this question is well known. It is impossible for commutative justice to exist in God because, as Paul affirms, who has given God anything so as to merit repayment, uh, that, so as to make a repayment due to him? Uh, paraphrasing Romans 11.35. God has no equal with whom he could engage in commercial exchange. On the other hand, when we consider the order of the universe, we can discern a certain distributive justice at work. Aquinas quotes a beautiful passage from Pseudo-Dionysius to express this. Quote, we see that God is truly just in seeing how he gives to all existing things what is proper to the condition of each and preserves the nature of each one in the order and with the power that properly belongs to it. What is due to each creature, what belongs to it, has been established by God's creative wisdom. God's justice is revealed in his act of granting to each thing what his wisdom has established for them. Thomas's method here deserves attention. He is applying his general principle that to understand what the scriptures affirm about God, we must first turn to the human experience of the terms employed, such as good or true or love, but then negate whatever in these terms would imply imperfection or limitation. When considering God's justice, therefore, we draw on human experience of justice to find analogies for what it means for God to be just. In Aquinas' view, Aristotle offers crucial resources in this theological endeavor because Aristotle is an expert concerning human justice. After his treatment of divine justice in question 21, Aquinas next considers justice when treating the state of original justice in which our first parents were created, that state of grace in the first part, question 95.1. And then again, when analyzing justification, the justification of the sinner, as the primary effect of sanctifying grace, first in the question on uh, the new law or the law of the gospel, but then more fully in the prima secunda in question 113 on justification. Before we consider these two theological realities, however, it will be helpful to go directly to the definition of justice Aquinas develops in question 58 of the Secunda Secundae. Here Aquinas poses, proposes the definition of justice articulated by Ulpian as contained in Justinian's Digest of Roman Law. At first take, we might be surprised that Aquinas would turn to Roman law instead of directly to Aristotle for his definition of justice. I believe, however, that Aquinas embraces the jurist definition because he holds that Roman law contains the distilled wisdom of generations of human experience, even if it does not express this wisdom philosophically or scientifically according to the four causes. From this perspective, Aristotle's role in Aquinas' analysis is to help him reformulate the jurist's definition. Justinian's Digest of Roman Law contains in its opening passages this definition of justice drawn from Ulpian, quote, 
Justice consists in a constant and perpetual will to give to each one his use. Justitia est constans et perpetua voluntas, jus sum quique tribuendi. Aquinas prepares for his analysis of this definition by first, in the previous question, identifying the jurist's use with Aristotle's dikaion, with the just, justum. By this seemingly innocuous elision, and throughout question 57, he'll say, jus seu justum. You know, as, as if that, you know, as, this, as the French would say, as if that va de soi. But with this apparently innocuous elision, Aquinas grounds the entire corpus of Roman law with its many practical articulations of use that it contains upon Aristotle's understanding of the virtue of justice, understood as a disposition, a habitus, that disposes us to do the just in our relations with others. This enables Aquinas to discern in the jurist definition, which focuses on justice as an act of the will, the elements of justice's character as a virtue, specifically by asserting that this voluntary act is both constant and perpetual, the jurists are simply expressing, according to Aquinas, that the will's act flows from a rightly ordered disposition, from a habitus, a virtue. Aquinas therefore is able to reformulate Uplian's definition in the following terms. Justice is a habit, whereby one renders to each one his use by a constant and perpetual will, which for Aquinas, which Aquinas sees as virtually identical to Aristotle's definition of justice as, quote, a habit whereby one is said to be capable of doing just actions in accordance with his choice. For Aquinas, this definition holds analogously for both commutative justice and distributive justice. In both cases, justice is a disposition that disposes us to do the just act, which signifies rendering to each one what is his, his use, what belongs to him because of who he or she is in that particular situation because of the network of relationships in which he or she finds themselves. A further implication of Thomas's identification of the jurist's use with Aristotle's dikaion is that it solidly makes use antecedent to lex. Justice as a juridical notion, as what is expressed in written law, flows from and presupposes the objectively just, what is objectively the case concerning relations between the members of a community, even before it is expressed in a codified law. Thomas respects law, but grants this respect only to the extent that law itself, as an expression of practical wisdom, respects the objective character of use of what the just in human, what is just in human relations. It is in this context that Aquinas draws on another aspect of Aristotle's understanding of justice, Aristotle's account of general or legal justice. Now, if we go back to Albert in the De Bono, a long paragraph, 
which perhaps I can put as also send you around. I did a translation of it, but it's uh, he's basically articulating a notion of general justice which sees it as all virtue as somehow the summation of virtue, all that we do, and also as primarily signifying relationships. So that Albert will go so far as to say, actually general justice has more the character of a, of a habitudo, which concerns an order, and not a habitus, which concerns act. It's very interesting. But Aquinas is rejecting that here. And he does so by drawing on Aristotle. Rejecting the popular idea that general justice simply signified all virtue, Aquinas embraces Aristotle's insight that general justice signifies a disposition in the will to order the acts of the other virtues toward the common good of the community. In this sense, general justice also has the just or a certain type of use as its object. Its object is what the individual citizen owes to communities, to the communities of which he is a part, primarily to the city-state of which he is a citizen. It was this relationship between particular justice and the common good that Cicero and, in his turn, Abelard, uh, were trying to articulate in this idea that you, you render to each one what is his, but in a way that doesn't endanger the uh, common utility, the common benefit. Uh, how to do that? Well, general justice is that disposition by which you order all the other virtues to the common good of the whole. Uh, this, uh, in this way, we are disposed to do uh, this is what we are disposed to do by means of general justice, to render to the community, to the common good, what is its due. This leads to one final question, and uh, it's what I want to look end with. How to understand the justice that is the focus of so much of the scriptures and also of the fathers and the early scholastics? That is, the reality that in Hebrew is expressed by the term zedekah, which the Septuagint translates universally as dikaiosune, and which the New Testament authors also express with this same word. So the affirmation that Abraham believed and it was rendered to him as zedekah, which is translated by the Septuagint as dikaiosune, and which Paul, several places, and James quotes saying that Abraham believed and it was rendered to him as dikaiosune. Jerome universally translates zedekah and dikaiosune as justitia. How to understand this biblical understanding of justitia? Where does biblical justice stand? This justice which so vexed earlier generations. Aquinas seems to identify it with Aristotle's metaphorical justice, applying which Aristotle sees metaphorical justice as being applied to the person interiorly, as if his powers were people, subjects of action, so that a person who has a well-ordered 
animus to anima to uh, his emotions, his affections. So the person who is well-ordered interiorly is described by Plato first and Aristotle as just, but it's a metaphorical justice for Aristotle. So Aquinas seems to imply that this ded biblical dedica, which I would like to translate more as right relationship with God, uh, is simply a form of metaphorical justice. Is this sufficient? Or has something been lost in translation? With all of the wonderful uh, aid that Aristotle provides Aquinas in articulating uh, particular justice and general justice, has something been lost by attributing the great biblical zedeka to metaphorical justice? Or does Aquinas actually hold a middle view that the biblical zedeka is a mixture of metaphorical justice and general justice? Or a third option suggested by James when James says that Abraham believed and it was rendered to him as Zedekah, as Dikaiosune, he also adds, and he was known as a friend of God. Is Aquinas then perhaps seeing with Augustine and perhaps with John's gospel that in the New Testament, biblical Zedekah becomes transformed by the New Testament's caritas, agape. Is this what ultimately becomes of the Old Testament preoccupation with right relationship? It is fulfilled in that other general virtue. Aquinas says that general justice orders all the virtues to the temporal city, but that charity orders all the virtues to the eternal city. Is this perhaps, according to Aquinas, what happens to biblical Old Testament justice? Thank you.